0: All right, it's what we've all been waiting for. I can see it scared so many folks away. Daniel, chapter 9, the 70 weeks. Let's turn our Bibles to Daniel, chapter 9. And we're going to look at the 70 weeks today. Now, there's an old woodsman who gives the following advice about catching a porcupine. He says this, watch for the slapping tail as you dash in and drop a large washtub over him. The washtub will give you something to sit on while you ponder your next move. <laughs> now, what is the next move? Now that we're in Daniel 9 and we're looking at the prickly 70 weeks, what in the world? How do you even begin to tackle this vision of the 70 weeks? Well, one commentator, he was clearly exasperated by the diversity of views that are found in the 70 weeks. To date, there are seven major views of the 70 weeks there are four views that follow what's called a literal lens in other words when they approach the 70 weeks they look through a lens of literal years and that's how they approach it then there's three other views that follow what's called an image lens that they see this vision for the genre that it is that it's a vision or it's an image it's a picture and meaning is communicated or delivered through a picture or an image now Being exasperated by these seven views, this is what he said. He says, perhaps it's a sign of the end times when scholars disagree on whether it is the Christ or the Antichrist spoken of in this text. Isn't that amazing? Some think it's the Antichrist. Some think it's the Christ. So are you ready for the vision of the 70 weeks? I'm not but we're going to do it anyways. Daniel chapter 9, 20 through 27. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. Now, remember in Daniel 9, 1 through 19, uh, Daniel is praying on behalf of Israel. He is actually doing what Solomon had talked about that when Israel found themselves in exile, if they were to pray and humble themselves and to seek the mercy of the Lord, the Lord would bring them back. Now, remember, Daniel is reading Jeremiah and he knows that the, the captivity would last 70 years in Babylon. And this is the first year of Persian rule. So the Babylonian captivity has ended with a new captivity. And so he's reading Jeremiah and he's stirred by Jeremiah to say, why well, are we going back? And he ends up doing what Israel was supposed to do, which is pray, humble himself, confess their sins, plead for The Lord to bring them back. Now, that's what the content is of those first couple of verses through 19. Now, after he's done praying or in the context of praying while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week. And he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the, this could be translated, which I take it to be extremity of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on. Again, it could be translated the desolate, the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh Lord, we confess that we come to this passage very much uh, in need, very much acknowledging uh, lacking in understanding, very much acknowledging that it's a tough text, that it's a controversial text, and yet it's here. And so, Lord, would you give and grant what Paul exhorted Timothy to think hard over these things for the Lord will give you understanding in these things. Timothy, so, O oh Lord, help us to think hard, not for an academic or a lecture sake or participating in a lab and dissecting the text to say, "Ooh, I like that. But, O oh Lord, would you cause us to think hard because by thinking hard, it's the appointed means that you give understanding, that you actually illumine, enlighten and liven your people to the grace of God. And so, O oh Lord, would you help me be clear? Would you help us all to see? Help us all to savor? And, O oh Lord, by your grace, be sent. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, many of you are still reeling because I've talked to you from last Sunday's sermon. You're reeling from the stunned role that Daniel plays in this passage on behalf of Israel. That Daniel actually has a standing in the gap redemptive role by which he prays on behalf of Israel and God acts on behalf of that prayer to accomplish redemptive purposes in Israel. You're stunned by that because this redemptive role has already been illustrated in eight other chapters that, it, that Daniel is supra righteous. You're conflicted because how do you bring together, I, I thought that all salvation is by grace alone flowing from the worth and work of christ alone that's one truth that's meandering around in your mind working itself in your heart and it collides with this other truth but daniel has this supra righteousness that seems to commend itself positively before god what do you do with that how do you bring those two together in other words here's the question and this is why This is why we need shovels, not rakes. When we come to the Bible, if we are those who are committed to taking a rake and just kind of moving things along the surface of the text and making a nice pile over here and separating some leaves from some dry grass. And, you know, we just kind of move things around or do we kind of dig deep into the text because the text demands some digging. The Bible comes with a shovel, not with a rake. And that's, this is a clear example of why that's the case, just asking this question. Dealing with those two conflicting truths. Are we saved by grace? Well, what about Daniel's super-righteousness that's positively established before God? How do we deal with that? Well, here's the question. How is Daniel made right with God? How is Daniel, in this passage... How is he justified? How is he made right before a holy God? Well, Daniel is Daniel right with God by his own righteousness, as seen in chapters 1 through 8? Is that what's going on here? Well, the answer we know from Paul, and we know from all the scripture, is no. Everyone sins. All have sinned. Everyone presently falling short of the glory of God. Paul goes on to even make it even more established. There's no one righteous. No one, not even one, he says. He says, all of us have a a mouth in which an open grave spills out its death and its poison. That's the picture. All of us are like that, including Daniel. So does Daniel have some super righteousness that makes him right before God? No, of course not. Then what are we to make, though, of this super righteousness that God sees? And he prays on behalf of Israel and God works and and sets in motion a historical return from an exile. What are we to make of that? Well, I want us to see, and I think we're getting there. But we, we need some more dots connected to fully get it. I want us to see that there's more going on in the Bible than be like Daniel. There's more going on in the Bible than be like Sarah or Abraham or Moses. There's more going on in the Bible than be like them. And then right there, don't be like David. And, and Abraham selling off his wife as his sister. Don't be like that. Or Sarah, when she heard the news, don't laugh as if it's a big joke. Don't be like Sarah there. Or when Daniel... Oh, we don't get that in Daniel. That's the tricky part, isn't it? Every other character from Noah... Remember, Noah is righteous, the only one in his generation. And through the righteousness of one man, the whole world is saved. And after the whole world is saved, Noah's drunk and does some disgusting things. But when you get to Daniel... Righteousness, 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 righteousness. There's no don't be like him in some area. There's more going on in the Bible than imitation of characters. A lot more going on. God is working out in the Old Testament times his plan, his story of his son. And that's why we have said throughout all of our times together, particularly in the Old Testament, when you get to the Old Testament, you need to remember that this is part of one big story about the Word of God. The seed that was promised way in the beginning that would crush the serpent's head. The unfolding of Israel's history is the preparation of the world for the coming seed, the promised one, the Christ. So, no matter where you are in the Bible, sure, it has chapters, just like any story would. And sure, the chapter. In that story is a self-contained unit that has an immediate context. But sure, that chapter is not fully understood if it's not placed in light of the one story of the whole Bible. Right? And so sure, we have people, especially prophets, priests, and kings, that you've got to pay particular attention to. You have major events and actions. You have institutions and places that have, in a sense, a historical Role, but they have a one-story role at the same time, okay? So, the passage you're reading and I'm reading in the Old Testament, it could take its first step towards Abraham, towards Isaac, or towards Moses, or towards David, or towards Daniel. Its first step could lead you to a fellow fallen worshiper status. In other words, the first step of Daniel or David or Moses, it could be he's just like you. An imitation might be involved. He's just like you. He's a sinner who is saved only by the grace of God, flowing only from the work of Christ. He's a sinner that needs desperately for God to move in on his behalf to give him salvation freely of grace. He's someone that needs the grace of God to actually grow and have a life change and to move on. He needs grace just like we do to have service and to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Of course he does. He needs all those things. But the passage also could lead not just to you and me as a fellow fallen worshiper. It could be leading and taking a redemptive role. And here's where we got to think hard. In other words, the step first could be that God has established this person, this event, this action, this institution to tie into the one story. To actually give you a skeletal pattern of the perfect one. And so, this redemptive role, he could be called and he could be set apart to serve as God's redemptive agent in the immediate historical context, which is what happens with Daniel. But in so doing, he also points beyond himself to the Redeemer, the coming one. So, what we have here is God carries out his redemptive purposes in history for Israel. What were the redemptive purposes here? They're in exile. What needs to happen? They need to return. Daniel's an agent, a redemptive agent called by God, that God works graciously in his life. And so as God works in this redemptive agent graciously, does does Daniel do all the things we see him do apart from the grace of God in the text? The answer is no. Does any character in the Bible work out these righteous acts as a redemptive agent, fulfilling redemptive purposes for israel at that time apart from the grace of god no not at all but now that person linked to the story actually gives you a pattern of what the one to come who is the redemption will be so when it requires a righteous person to stand before a holy god on behalf of a sinful people and move God to act on their behalf, you get an incredible picture of someone greater than Daniel. You get a picture of someone who actually stands with his own life, his own death, his own resurrection, and his powerful reign on behalf of us before God. And God says, I And I'm gracious because of you. So there's the picture we end up getting. All right. So I hope we're that little knot about, well, what about Daniel? Is he saved by grace? Of course he is. But by God's grace, he had a redemptive role in Israel's history. And by God's grace, his redemptive role points to the redemptive role of the Redeemer. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, this was all a stall because I don't want to do the 70 weeks. All right. We're trying to catch the prickly porcupine of the 70 weeks, aren't we? So our plan today is to drop the big, large washtub over the porcupine. It, it, we're going to drop it and we're going to see what happens when we drop it. And then we're going to sit on it so that we have time to think about what we do next week. So we're going to try to get our hands around the passage before we lift it up and actually get into the muck of the passage and the prickliness of the passage so this is what we're going to do the big wash tub that's dropped over the prickly 70 weeks is the big idea of chapter 9 in other words in order to even tackle the 70 weeks to even get in and say where do you begin how do you start you have to have a big wash tub drop over the top of this mess and the Big washtub is the big idea of Daniel chapter 9. What's the big idea? Covenant. Okay? Covenant. Now, I, want you to pr- I have to prove this because we're into proving now. We're into seven competing interpretations. So I need to prove to you that this is the case. Let's look at verse 4. I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps... What's the word? Covenant. That's at the beginning. Now let's go to the end. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong... What's the word? Covenant. Barit. Those two words bookend this chapter. Those two words give you the dominant idea or the big idea of this chapter. Everything else is within... This context, everything else is within this washtub. Everything else is within there. The 70 weeks is within these two bookends of covenant. In fact, after the first four, when covenants used Lord capital L O R D Yahweh, which is God's covenant name, it all of a sudden shows up in Daniel for the first time, seven times in eight verses. It's like one commentator says, like Daniel or the Lord is trying to make up for its absence in the first eight chapters. So the emphasis of this great chapter is covenant. Now, this means whatever the 70 weeks means, whatever it means, it must deal with the dominating idea of covenant to be to be a right interpretation You know what I mean? Whatever it means, it must deal with covenant to at least be on semi good mark of a right interpretation. In other words, a proper interpretation must deal with God's performance driven covenant with national Israel. Why is Israel not in the land? There was a covenant made, Deuteronomy, and an exodus with God's people, a national covenant. It was a covenant based on this. Look, if you do this, you stay in the land, Israel. Are they in the land? No. Were they doing this? No. That's why the confession for 19 chapters. We failed to do this, Daniel is saying. As a nation, as an ethnic people, as a national covenant with you, our performance has been poor. Poor. And that's why we're not in the land anymore. Now, this explains, and this alone explains the exile. They failed in a performance driven covenant. But what explains the return? Think hard, friends. What explains the return? Their performance? Look at verse 18. O my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, performance, but because of your great mercy. So we know something else is at work here, don't we? And then what we're got to realize is what explains once they do return and they get back in the land, what explains another spiraling, mm-hmm. downward, sinful, national apostasy? Again, that leads to another fall, which leads to the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD, which leads to what Jesus says at that time. It marks that the old performance-driven national covenant Is over. It's got to deal with that. Now, a proper interpretation must also deal with the promise-driven covenant. We're saying, well, what promise-driven covenant? Well, remember what Paul said in Galatians? 430 years before this national performance-driven covenant, there was a promise cut with Abraham. So there's another covenant that actually precedes this one. And it it's like the the river that flows underneath the it's on the surface in Abraham and it's on the surface. And all of a sudden with the national covenant, it just goes below the surface. And you see it only through sacrificial systems. You see it only in personal repentance. You see it only in God demonstrating mercy and grace and salvation and saving people on an individual way. But on this national way, it's still driven by performance. So you've got to deal with this. In fact, what Paul says about this, this is what he says. He's interesting. He says the performance driven covenant with national Israel does not annul. These are the words of uh, Galatians does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. If the inheritance comes by the law, the performance driven covenant, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham I promise. OK, we've, we've thought very hard. We need a little breather. What we're saying is this. In order to understand the 70 weeks, you've got to wrestle with the the filter, the grid of covenant in the 70 weeks. You've got to wrestle. And that means there's some performance driven covenant in there. And there's a promise driven covenant in there. So the Bible tells us there is. And you've got to deal with it to get to a right interpretation. So a promised covenant cut with Abraham, you've got to deal with. One that ultimately points to the seed of Abraham, which Paul tells us is Jesus, not seeds. We've got to deal with that. All right. So this is what we can say. If the dominant idea is covenant and you approach it and bring it onto the 70 weeks, if an interpretation of the vision of the 70 weeks ignores or bypasses this controlling, dominating idea, then the interpretation is suspect at best, woefully wrong at worst. Do you see where I'm going? If the interpretation of the 70 weeks goes around this idea of covenant, doesn't even, you know, just kind of waves at it and boom, it's on its way to another end. It never deals with the idea of covenant. Then it should be suspect. Now what happens when you apply this wash tub to the seven major interpretations? 4 get swallowed up in the wash tub. 3 get swallowed up in the wash tub. 4 take off. So what we're saying is just by applying this covenantal idea, we've cut the list down to 3. Now, I need to tell you what those three are so that we at least have an idea of what we're talking about. The list shortens from seven to three. Which four of the seven do you think go? The four literal interpretations. Now, here's where I step on some toes. And as my favorite pastor says, step on the shoe without messing up the shine. Okay, so let's try to not mess up your shine as I step on your shoe. Here it is. There are four interpretations that use a pair of glasses. When they look at the scriptures, it's called a literal pair of glasses. In other words, meaning comes by literal numbers. There are there are 70 weeks here. And these four interpretations are trying to wrestle with the 70 weeks or what's called 490 years. And they think this 490 years is the proper interpretation of the 70 weeks. Okay. Now we know the Bible communicates not just in literal numbers, which we believe it does. Remember the Bible is a bucket. The water of the word is contained in many buckets in the Bible. It could be contained in picture. It could be contained in proposition. It can be contained in poetry. It can be contained in narrative history. It can be contained in literal numbers or it can be contained in metaphorical numbers because you can't push it too far because the Scripture tells you what the bucket is. If Jesus comes up and he says to his disciples, look, no one can have a piece of the kingdom of God unless he eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood. Well, if you're stuck in your literal hermeneutic, you're a cannibal. Unless unless the bucket that's communicating the truth there is a metaphor or an image or a picture. Now obviously when you look at verse twenty three, look at verse twenty three. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell you for you're greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the what? The vision. We're told what the seventy weeks are in terms of their bucket. It's a picture. But it's interesting that the four literal interpretations ignore that it's a picture and they ignore the use of covenant. Okay, so how do I walk through this mess? Let's do it this way. There are these four views that are off the list. One's the dispensational view. Two are two critical views. In other words, there are higher critics of the Bible. You might have heard this. Those of you at school, you know, you've heard this higher critics of the Bible are those who generally take a position when they come to the scripture. Of suspicion, not faith. In other words, when they approach the Bible, their first step is not, I believe it's the word of God, I trust that it's the word of God. When they take their first step, they say, hmm, I'm very suspicious of this document. Okay? Well, there are two views that come from those folks, the critical views, that are based on literal numbers. There's another view from the dispensational folks that we'll look at. And then there's Josephus' view. All of them. All of them are trying to make 490 years work. All right. All of them are trying to do that. They're all trying to make those numbers work. They're trying to make those numbers work between the historical return and Passover 33 A.D. when Jesus died on the cross. That's the 490 years. Now, the problem is, is that the mark, the actual number of years is is 573 so you got to meander the numbers to make it work, okay? Now, here's what they do. Ah, I'm going to save that for last. What I'm going to do is I want to talk about the dispensational view because that's the major view in the text. That's the major view in evangelicalism today. It's the major view in the church. If you are born in America and you end up going to church, you, you breathe the air of a dispensational view of the scriptures. That's it's a given. It's the dominating view. So I want to deal with that one. And I want to deal with three problems to it. And then we're going to wrap up why we're actually doing this. Okay? So hang in there with me. Three problems with a dispensational view. Number one, to make the 490 years work. Now, what's the 490 years based on? 70 times 7. What is that? Cal, 70 times 7. 490. There we go. 490 years. Why? Because in Leviticus 25... 70 weeks weeks is is actually referred to as a sabbath and what leviticus 25 is saying is that when there are seven years there needs to be a sabbath year so if you have 70 sabbaths or 70 weeks 70 times 7 is 490 that's where that comes from just so you're with me it took me a while to figure that one out you guys aren't impressed all right now to make the numbers work To make the numbers work, the dispensational view has this vast time gap between Passover 33 AD and what they call the final end times. And they call that gap the church age. So what happens is for 69 weeks, 69 times 7 is what? 483 years. So for 69 weeks or 483 years, they follow the numbers to the T. And then they have this vast gap of who knows how many years called the church age and then the last week or the 70th week is the last 7 years which happens at the last final days a literal 7 years. So do you see what's happened? You have this vast time gap and that's a huge problem if you're a literal hermeneutic. Because you just all of a sudden went unliteral. You went, shall I say it? metaphorical okay problem number one problem number two to make the numbers work they have to change and one of my dear professors is the one that even does it dr honer he said you have to take the 365 days it's in a normal year and make it 360 and if you make it 360 the numbers will work now to me that's a problem that's just sitting self-evidently on the text. So I don't, I'm not going to comment on that. The third major problem, to make the numbers work, the timetable waits 100 years after Daniel to begin. In other words, in order to get the 490 years, which, remember, is 483 and 69, leaving seven for the final end times with that gap of the church age in between. To get there, to get there, You have to start 100 years after Daniel. Now, you tell me what's going on in verse 23. Look at verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved, therefore consider the word and understand the vision. It seems that that the 70 weeks is beginning right now. Let's go down to verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word, the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, the exile. Remember, that's the exile, the return to the coming of the anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. From the beginning of the decree, time begins, not 100 years later. One Old Testament scholar says this before Cyrus's first year was concluded, there was a heavenly decree that rang in heaven. And what we're getting a picture here is God announcing through Gabriel the heavenly decree. My people will return. And Gabriel goes on, as it says, on swift flight at the evening sacrifice, when God meets with man. The heavenly decree goes forward and this this person says and it's registered in earthly history when Cyrus in 539 says you can go. Now that's 539, not 444 BC, which is 105 years later which this model wants to push. Okay? Those are the big problems I see. You might not be convinced you're welcome to not be convinced that leaves three truth through picture meanings to be dealt with. One is considered a Lutheran view. The other two are considered reformed Presbyterian views with a slight difference between them. I hold to the reformed Presbyterian views. The details will impact next week. We're not going to do that today. So why in the world do we spend time even looking at this? Why? Why? I mean this is just nice to sit up here and talk about numbers. Do you think I like talking about numbers? It's so controversial. It's such a tough text. I mean, can anyone even know what the right meaning is in the text? Why in the world are we dealing with this? I've got 3 reasons why we should look at the vision of the 70 weeks. Number 1 because the 70 weeks are in the Bible. They're in the Bible. There are no wasted words in the Bible. None. When Paul says all Scripture, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so you may be competent and equipped for every good work. He meant the 70 weeks too. All right? So God has the 70 weeks here for his glory and for your good. So God is accomplishing through these 70 weeks the exaltation of his name. He's actually making his glory more glorious to you as he does good to you, according to Paul. Reason number one. Reason number two, a fog in the pulpit or a fog in a popular Bible teacher. Or a fog in a theological system, or a fog in a church's beliefs, or a fog in your mind and in your heart. A fog in you does not mean there's a fog in the Bible. A fog in me does not mean there's a fog in the Bible. God's Word is always crystal clear. It's always shining like the sun on a blue sky. Always. The clouds, the fog, the rain, the storm is in us. Not in the Bible. So God's word is always true. God's word is always triumphant. God's word is always transforming. God's word is always tingling. Is it tough at times? You bet. Is it tarnished? Never. Never. Last reason we should study this is because the answer is found in verse 27. Let's look at verse 27 together. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half a week. He'll put an end to sacrifice and suffering. Now, we're going to unpack that in tremendous detail, because if you're thinking well, good night, it's only for half of one week or half a week. Well, if literally that's what you think, it's not a very strong covenant. It only lasts for a week. How strong can that be? How prevailing can that be? How overpowering can that be? It's, it's one week. Well, again, if if we're looking at numbers in their visionary bucket, which is an image, and then it's interesting when you take that number and find out that That John is given that same number in Revelation, and it actually refers to the whole church age. Oh, that's a pretty long time. And why would we need to know that during this time of God's people, someone makes a strong covenant with you? The word strong literally means prevail. It means mighty. It means overpowering. In the Hebrew language, in the ancient Near Eastern world, you can do two things with a covenant. You can cut a covenant, number one, or you can confirm a covenant, number two. Which one do you think is going on here? If you cut a covenant, you're establishing a covenant. You're bringing two parties together in a binding relationship, and you're cutting, beginning, establishing the binding relationship. You're bringing them together, okay? Okay. If you're confirming a covenant, you're honoring a covenant already made. You're making it strong. You're making it prevail. You're making it big. You're making it overpowering. That's what's happening here. How do I know? Because, again, in the Hebrew language, it will use a different word for cutting a covenant versus confirming a covenant. In 27, when it says make a strong covenant, it's using the confirming word. Now, why in the world does God need to confirm a covenant that he made? Why? Does God forget? Does God weaken in his covenantal alliance? Does God struggle to keep covenant in you, with you, when he sees the pride in your heart? Does God struggle to keep covenant with you when he sees your pitiful, poor worship? Does God struggle in His covenant with me or with you when He hears our angry words? When He hears our lack of love for each other? When He hears our lack of love towards Him? Does He wander? Does He struggle? Does He need to be confirmed in His covenant? Is He struggling to hold on to being loyal to you and gracious to you and strong to you because He knows what you're like? And he knows what I'm like. Is that what's going on? The answer is that God doesn't need to confirm his covenant with you. We need him to. We need him to make it strong. Make it overpowering. We need him to make us feel it right now. Because we're weak and we struggle and we sin, and we forget, and we fall down, and we don't know if we're going to make it, and we suffer. And he says, I will make it strong to you, for you, because I know what you're like. You weaken in your faith and obedience and God always remains strong. You weaken in doing good and God always remains strong. You weaken in your worship and God always remains strong. You forget you're forgiven and you forget his grace and you forget you're clothed in his righteousness. And you and I forget that he gives you enabling, transforming, sin-killing grace. We forget he's given us new works and good obedience, but God always remains strong. You forget that you're an instrument. You're a light on the hill to put on display the grace and the glory of God. God always remains strong. The 70 weeks are here for sinners, for strugglers, for the weak. That's who it's here for. For those of us who need to feel the force of a strong bond of grace. That's why it's here. On Thursday morning, I was at a local establishment and uh, studying for this week, and I was thinking out loud the Jubilee, and we'll think that out loud together next week. But I was thinking out loud the Jubilee, and I looked up from my computer, and you have one of those, you know, those thoughtful, reflective, prayerful stares into nowhere that you do. They just kind of looked out, and when I looked out, I saw into the parking lot of this establishment a middle-aged married couple hugging. And I looked, and and, uh, I thought, no big deal. You know, it's a normal husband-wife hug before you get off and you go to work for the day and you separate. You know, I love you, honey. Have a good day. Uh, But very quickly, uh, it was apparent it was not your goodbye hug. It was a very intense hug, and I started thinking instinctively. I just started thinking, I, I wonder if one of them's going away for a while, maybe to another city or even out of country. I and mean, that's just instinctively. That's what I started thinking. I wonder, is one of them going? I'm, I'm trying to see who, who's, who, which one? I tried to guess which one's going away. And then the hug shifted while I was thinking that. The wife buries her head into his chest. And the husband squeezes tighter. This hug went way beyond hug etiquette. You know, especially public hug etiquette. It went beyond the awkward. They weren't concerned about the stairs. And they weren't concerned about what other people thought. The world stood still. I couldn't look away. It was not, I love you, honey. Have a good day. It was not, I love you, honey. I'm going to miss you. Can't wait to see you when I get back. It was, I need you. Do not let me go. And the husband said, I won't let you go. If you can feel the force of that, you can feel the force of the 70 weeks. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you, if your interpretation of the 70 weeks doesn't move you to feel the force of his hold on you, it's a wrong interpretation. Jesus holds you in a strong new covenant of grace and he won't let you go. That should make you tingle. That should make you tremble. That should make you trust him. Amen.